So this morning and next week, we're going to wrap this series up. I encourage you, if um, you have a journal, grab it, page 60 there to grab some notes. If you don't have a journal, you say, what is that? That's our reading plan that we put together. One of the things that, again, as a church, we are very passionate about this. Whether you're exploring faith for the very first time or whether you've been walking with God through Jesus for years, um, we'd say, hey, it's so important for yourself to digest and read and take in the word of God. And so, again, we've tried to help you to do that, put together a plan. I think then the plan runs along with our uh, message. So I encourage you to grab one. They're free out in the foyer. Now this morning, what I want to do is not going to do a lot of review. Hopefully you've uh, kind of caught a lot of that. If not, you can grab it online. I want to jump right in this morning um, to the, where we're at this morning. We're, we kind of lump these two together. And I think as we talk this morning, hopefully it, uh, I think it'll make sense when we put them together. But uh, these are the next commandments that we're going to tackle. Now we'll be, Chris mentioned earlier at the start of the service. It's a heavy, heavy message. This isn't lightweight stuff. Uh, but it basically is this. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. That's, they're simple. They're short. They're, uh, there it is. Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 to 14, the sixth and the seventh commandment. Now, as you think about these, here's what kind of going to go this morning. I've been to a lot of weddings, a lot. I've, I've done a lot of weddings, I stood on a stage like this and offici- officiated with often you guys have been there. You know how it runs. You have this beautiful woman who comes forward dressed in white and everyone is, you know, she comes in, everyone stands and looks at her and all the attention is focused on her. And then you got this groom who's standing up here oftentimes with a mix of nerves and excitement and, and he's all wound up and ready for this big day to happen. And then they stand here in the beauty of the event and they, they commit and they covenant together to walk together, to love you know, till death do us part, to love each other. You know, I've been to a lot of weddings and I've never, ever, ever, ever heard someone say, you know what? Uh, I hope we only make it six months. You know what? Our goal, our goal is to cheat on each other. Our goal is to, by year one, to have other partners. I've never, you know, these weddings are beautiful events and there's such anticipation and excitement. I've never met someone who walks forward, walks down that aisle saying, my goal is to end and blow this thing up and cause all kinds of pain for everyone involved. We don't dream of it. We dream of living happily ever after. Yet the statistics, as I looked at them this week, they were sobering. Now, they're, they're kind of hard to grab. And here's why. Because when you talk about adultery, it's a secretive sin, Obviously, you know, the, the hack of that website here recently, the Ashley, was it Ashley Madison or that site? I mean, it's all of a sudden all these secrets. So you want to keep it a big secret. So trying to figure out how many people are involved in adulterous affairs in marriage with someone that isn't your spouse, um, how many is it? So it's kind of hard to grab, but the low numbers, I kind of threw out the highs and the lows, and then all the mid-range numbers land between 30 to 60% of all married people will have an affair. Think about that. 30 to 60% of you in this room will commit adultery. Now, I was thinking about that sober. Now, here's how it breaks down with men. Men, unfortunately, we, some of you probably would have guessed this, unfortunately. One-third of all married men, before they die, will have committed adultery. Women, one-fourth. And women, the women number has radically grown over the last uh, 20 years. I mean, if you look at statistics, it has just spiked up. Uh, again, there's all kinds of discussions of why that is, why that might be. But again, it's just it's sobering to think about it. So no one walks to the front of the aisle saying, this is my goal in life. But a lot of us fall there and go there. Homicide. Homicide's a little less. Uh, now, if 100, out of 100,000 people... Out of 100,000 people, 5.1 commit murder, homicide. 
Now, in Pennsylvania, last year, 2014, 609 homicides on the books in Pennsylvania. We are the fourth largest state for numbers. Now, that kind of shocked me. California was number one, just for comparison. California had 1,697, so roughly 1,000 more than Pennsylvania had. Um, If you're saying, well, what was the best? I mean, I'm going to go move to the best. Well, that's Alabama, who beat LSU last night, some of the Alabama fans in the room. Alabama Alabama had um, only one homicide in 20, in last year, 2014. So again, we look at, we look at adultery. That, that issue is kind of more right in front of us. We look at murder, and that's kind of distant. There's probably very few of you in this room, if any, who've ever even, uh, you know, have spent any kind of time in jail for homicide. Now, here's the deal. We say we don't want either one of these. We stand up in front of a, we stand up in front of a room, in front of all kinds of witnesses and say, I don't want it. I'm not going to do it. I want no part of it. We say, you know what? I don't want to be locked away for murder. It's the last thing I want to do to take another's life. But here's the deal. You say you don't, but we're going to look at this morning as most of you already have and you will. Because, see, this subject goes much broader than just the simplicity of saying taking life in murder and actually getting in someone else's bed when I'm married and getting in bed with someone who's not my spouse. The problem, the, the problem is much broader than what we think and what we realize. And the other reality is right now, most of you in this room are thinking rationally. And what I have discovered with both of these, those who fall in these are not thinking rationally when they fall. Matter of fact, it's interesting as I was studying this week, oftentimes, and you may relate to this, or you may have heard others say this, oftentimes when someone is locked in jail and they're thinking back on their event, they begin to say things like, man, they are surprised by their behavior. How did I even get here? Or you talk to someone after they, after they again, commit adultery, maybe for the first time, and they begin to think, how did I get here? I'm so surprised that I even did this. So again, we don't think rationally to fall there. Right now, you're sitting here, you're very rational in thought. But when we, the pressure's on, it's rationality goes right out the window. So again, most of us will or have or will. Now, here's what I want to do this morning to help us. While we are thinking rationally, let's play on the rational. And I think the rational can tap into some of the irrational later down the road for you. But here's the thing we want to look at. Matthew chapter 5 is going to capture this. And you can start to turn there if you'd like. But we want to avoid the carnage. Avoid the carnage by playing the movie forward. In other words, another way to say it is we're going to visualize the destruction. Jesus actually talks about these issues. And as he catches, he kind of catches a vision. And he throws this thing out. And he says, listen, this is a big deal. And in both situations, he's looking future to eternal future. And in murder, he's even looking future saying, hey, listen, this is what's going to come of your life. So let's kind of play the movie forward and uh, see if we can't set our lives up in a way that we can hopefully avoid both murder and adultery. If you turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. That's page 802 in the Bibles and the seats in front of you. Again, maybe you're brand new to church. Again, we'd say welcome. Um, if you are brand new to church, this is a church where sitting all around you are probably people who, who maybe even grew up in a church or passionate about knowing God and, and come to church regularly to interact with other people. And so again, all, all walks here in this room. But one of the things, those sitting around you that are passionate about knowing Jesus and walking with him, one of the things we as a church are saying, we're committed to rolling the red carpet out for those of you who are exploring for the first time. One of our aids in helping you to do that is putting Bibles there for you to use. So if you don't have a Bible, maybe you're brand new, I'd say, hey, take 
that Bible home uh, and use it. It's our gift from us to you. But page 802, there in Matthew chapter 5. I just want to read these verses. This is Jesus. Uh, let me just kind of set the context for you. This is the, called the Sermon on the Mount. We had a sermon series last spring where we looked at the front end of this, which is called the Beatitudes. Some of you know them as blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the... So Jesus has this sermon. It's probably one of the most well-known sermons of all human history. It is Jesus' most famous sermon. Famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because he's preaching from the Mount of Olives. It's kind of a, a hill slash mountain that kind of overlooks a region there in, uh, in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he is stands and he just gathers all these people around him. It's the early part of his ministry. And he just lays out this just powerful teaching. Now, he leads through, kind of lays the foundation for the teaching in, in the early parts of the sermon. He basically says, listen, I have come to fulfill the law. So this is a whole sermon on the law. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that the law doesn't make me good. The law shows me that I can't be good, that I've actually flawed, and that I need someone outside of me to help me be good. So Jesus kind of introduces that concept by basically saying the entire law points to me, and I fulfill fill the law. So he lays out this kind of broad teaching and he, and then all of a sudden now he's going to get into very specific detail and kind of practical ways of living. The very first practical reality he gets into is this is basically murder and adultery. Uh, so verse 21, he picks up with the, with the sixth commandment. It says this, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, or in some of your translations have raka, it's like a guttural spitting sound is what this word really comes from, like raka, like you're hocking a loogie on someone. Uh, you are in danger of being, that's for the junior hires in the room, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So this is, this is heavy stuff. Jesus says, listen, I'm, we're talking about murder, but murder is a lot broader. It's about this hatred and contempt, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Keep reading. Verse 23. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to the person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So in other words, pause right there. So you come into this room here to worship. This, this, we don't have a temple. We have a church building. So you come here to worship. And you, as you're sitting here, you're thinking, oh, my goodness. Someone has a real problem with me. Jesus says, this is urgent stuff. It's so urgent. Stop what you're doing and go make it right. Verse 25, when you're on your way, this is kind of his future cast. He says, when you're on, your, on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. So again, playing that movie forward, it will be ugly if you don't keep your records short and deal with it quickly. Verse 27. Now he's going to shift and talk about adultery. And these two are actually linked. We're going to talk about that this morning. Murder and adultery are, I think, dovetailed together in in an interesting way. Verse 27, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. So that's the seventh commandment. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your your whole body to be thrown into hell. So again, I want to pause here and let the weight of this set in. I was talking about this with my wife actually just last night. And we talked about, you know, we believe in eternal security. I firmly believe that you can know for certain when you die, where you go. But these passages, 
these passages are heavy. And they wrestle when you say, well, if I believe in eternal security and I take Jesus literally, what do I do with this? And my wife and I would talk and I said, you know what, I just as a pastor, I don't want to talk a lot, around a lot about that. I just want to let the weight of this passage set in because I think that's what Jesus' intent was. Basically, he's saying, listen, it would be better to go to heaven maimed with an eye gouged out than to hell whole. How you handle adultery, how you handle murder, the hell concept was thrown in there too. How you handle these says something about your eternal destiny. It's some capacity. Now, I'll let you wrestle with that in your small groups. I'll let you wrestle with that with your families at home. But I just want to let the weight of that set in. Not to scare you, not to shame you, not to, but let the weight of this set is what I, my heart is this morning. Verse 30. And if your hand even, so he's going to repeat this. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin. So in other words, listen, this hand that you need to make a living, it would be better for you to hack it off and wrestle and struggle to even survive in life than it would be to struggle with this reality of lust and pornography and, and all the other things that kind of come with it. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, verse 30, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Heavy, heavy teaching. Not lightweight stuff. Not oh, warm and fuzzy, thank you, Jesus. I'm really glad you shared that. But here's what I'm doing. What I want to do this morning is try and help this to be practical for us. And here's the first question I want to ask. It's interesting to me that Jesus, out of all the teachings that he could have picked right out of the gates, so he's preaching a sermon on the mountain, out of all the practical things he could have dove into, why does he pick murder and adultery as the first two practical launching points into this sermon? So he lays out kind of the kind of I fulfill the law, he says. He lays all that out. And then he says, now let's talk about the kingdom way of living. And the first two he talks about are murder and adultery. Why? Why? Well, here's, again, my answer. Yours may be different. And I, again, not that mine's right or wrong. I have the microphone, so this is the one I'm going to share, right? Jesus, what I think he is doing, here's at the heart of both of these. Both of these commandments, at the very heart of what he is doing, in my opinion, and I'll show you a verse in a minute that I think undergirds this, Jesus is exposing our pride and our self-righteousness. I think murder really trips this one for us. Let me show you the verse. It comes in Luke. Now, Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to tell a story. Before he tells the story, this is kind of the background of it. He says, then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. I don't think there's any mistake in Jesus putting those two together. In fact, I have found it to be very true that if you're in this room and you're a person who depends on your own self-works and your own hard work and digging in and and yourself, you can make yourself righteous. If that's where you're going to live life, what I find happening is we become very angry, nasty people. Because what I've got to begin to do is, number one, I've got all this guilt pressing on me that I've got to constantly do something with. But number two, generally how we become self-righteous is we spend our time looking around at everyone. Oh my word, look at them. Oh, did you, did you see what they did? Wow, did you, did you catch that? Did you see the news last night? Did you catch Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? We point out, and why are we doing it? Is it for the other person's benefit? It's almost always for our own benefit to lift ourselves up, to make ourselves better, to make ourselves look righteous. They struggle. I don't struggle with that. I'm a pretty good guy. It's kind of how the little thinking goes. 
So Jesus says self-righteous people, he links this, self-righteous people, generally you're going to find a self-righteous people to basically look down their nose at everyone else around them. It just kind of has to happen that way if you're a self-righteous person. So I think Jesus steps into murder to expose this because what he does, if you look at verse 22, now some scholars, and again, I'll let this, you guys can, you're smart people, you can have a fun discussion on this. Some see verse 22 building as a progression, one leads to the next. I personally don't do that, but I want to at least show you the, the different degrees that are in verse 22. If you see verse 22, it says, but I say, if you're even angry with someone, so the very first mention is anger, okay? Now, he's going to build on that, and, and I think it's not necessarily building. I think you can have this second one even without the first one. So, so first, was angry. then the second one, you're subject to judgment. Then the second one, if you call someone an idiot. Now, the term in a lot of your tra- translations is raka. Again, it's that guttural, raka, like you're hacking. It's basically, um, the translators have a hard time with this word because it is an absolute look down your nose. You are a stupid idiot is kind of how, how you translate that Hebrew word that comes into Um, into our scriptures. Now then the next thing, so it's kind of this looking down your nose. And now the next one is you are in danger of being brought before the court. And the final one, and if you curse someone, so some of your translations say, if you call someone a fool, so that's basically, you're basically at this point, um, again, it's just kind of moved from anger to this, to just contempt. I mean, I just, I don't think I don't part of you. You're in a flat out fool. Now, most of us understand anger. I think when you see it, you get it. Angry people, we, yeah, I get it. I don't, they're angry. They got a problem. Contempt, though. I want to spend some time with contempt. Contempt's an interesting one to me. But to get there, let me kind of show you. Dallas Willard does something. If you've never read Divine Conspiracy, great read. Encourage it. It's a, it's a deep read, not, not an easy, lightweight read before you go to bed. But he draws this link. It says, anger indulged instead of simply waved off always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity. Find a person who has embraced anger and you find a person with a wounded ego. So again, it's Jesus kind of coming at this thing, this pride and self-righteousness. You've got an angry person. You've got a proud person. And their ego has been wounded or they're trying so hard to protect it. I am good. They're working very hard at that. Now, the second thing I think Jesus does here, and this is where we'll get into the contempt. Jesus, I think, not only is he showing you that, that this pride and self-righteousness, but he's also showing the value of humans. And that's where the contempt comes in. In other words, merely not killing someone, don't murder, doesn't really show the value of a human life, in my opinion. Okay, so I don't murder him. Does that mean I value him? No, not fully. See, God's glory, who God is, it cannot, he cannot be tarnished or destroyed. Now, you may try in this lifetime. You may say, I'm an atheist, Adam, and I've tried to prove everything that God is dead, and I've worked my tail off, and I think I've done it. Well, I've, again, I promise that when you pass into eternity, you're going to find out a very different story. He can, his glory cannot be tarnished. It cannot be ruined. However, do you know what can be ruined and can be tarnished? You and I. We bear the image of God. James chapter 3, verse 9 might be a verse you'd write down and look at this week. And we can be violated. Human dignity can be ruined. And it can be all, and sometimes destroyed. So Jesus is stepping in to say the heart of this commandment is to protect human life. And, and, and deeper than, than just not murdering, this runs into anger and contempt. Now contempt, anger, what anger does is anger seeks to intimidate and control. If you come towards me and you begin to step in an area that I'm not real fond of, I get angry with you. What I am really doing is I'm trying to say, listen, I am in control, back off. 
Okay, so it's either we're going to fight or flight. Now, contempt, though, contempt is something far uglier, and it's far more refined, and many of us don't see it, but it runs throughout most of our lives. What contempt does is contempt isolates the person as unlovable. Contempt says, you're out there, we're all over here. It kind of pushes out and excludes. And then what it does is contempt. When you really, you may have a hard time even hanging your hat on it because someone's showing contempt for you. But when you feel, begin to sense it, it, what it does is it reverberates in your heart long after what, the, what was even said. I'll give you a couple examples of this. I tried to just give some practical examples. That hopefully you can begin to see how prevalent this is in, in most of our lives. First one is a lady, a young lady who has worked very hard with her weight. Worked very hard. Uh, she lost weight, and she was so excited to come into the holidays, and she went to go, she was going to the family get-together. And so she goes to Goodwill to pick out a new outfit because most, so much of her clothes were now kind of you know, loose and hanging on her. So she picks out this outfit. Before, the, before she leaves, she stands in front of the mirror, and she looks in the, at herself in the mirror with pride and excitement. Just thinking back over the last couple months and all the hard work that she has done, and she says, man, this is, I, am, I have worked so hard, and she should be proud of that. She leaves and gets in the car and she gets into the, gets into the family room and she walks in the house and people kind of greet her. She steps into the living room. As soon as she walks in the living room, there sits her older sister. As soon as her older sister sees her, first thing out of her older sister's mouth is, geez, wow, look at that outfit. Looks like he walked right out of uh, Nordstrom's. Now, you say, what's wrong with that? It's contempt. Why does her sister say it? I don't know. But what it does is it begins to exclude it doesn't value the sister. And here's what begins to happen now with the sister who hears it. Contempt plants this seed that, oh, there's something wrong with me. She's excluding me. She's pushing me out. Now suddenly the, the, the sister is, is throughout the rest of the day in the coming weeks, she's beginning to beat herself up now. Man, I was so stupid. Why did I ever think? Why did I ever think that, that you know, I could just be enjoyed for dressing attractively? I seem so foolish. And now she's beating herself up. All because her sister throughout this nasty, uncalled for, sarcastic jab. A couple other illustrations. Basically, kind of this says, listen, join us or die <laughs> or face greater mockery. A couple other uh, situations. And here's why this gets tough is a lot of us, a lot of us have fed on contempt. In fact, I would venture guess if we were to pass a microphone around here this morning, I would venture guess that at least half of us in this room are in the places of employment or doing the things that you're doing today rooted somewhere back in because of contempt given to you. For example, it's the, it's the major league baseball player who was always picked last at recess for softball. As he was picked last, he'd always have kids make fun of him and laugh at him. And he stumbled around the bases and wasn't very fast. And he begins to step down and that contempt sets in. He says, I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. So I'm going to make myself lovable. So he works his tail off. And today he's a star in the major league, playing in major leagues. Or the girl who's fighting as a pro, in a prominent position for victim rights is rooted back to the contempt and the mockery that she had when she was maturing into her junior high years and developing physically. And all the boys would begin to make fun of her because she was out ahead of her peers. And that sets in and it propels her to do something. Or the brilliant scientist, the brilliant scientist who when he was in high school and college could never quite land a date. So he began to just work off in isolation with formulas and test tubes. And now he's again today a brilliant scientist. Or the, or the little kid who always wore ratty sneakers because he came from a single parent home. And he'd always get made fun of for his ratty sneakers. Today, he's a millionaire because he vowed they will never make fun of me for my sneakers again. I'm a product of this story. 
I mean, I've shared the thing about me being stupid as a kid, and I worked my tail off to avoid that. You walk into my office today, I've got books everywhere. Now, how much of that is rooted to the fact that I was called stupid, and I internalized that message, and I felt so unlovable. So I'm like, I am going to prove to everyone that I'm not stupid. Now, I'm glad I read, and reading's a part of my story, and I'm proud of that. But how much of it is linked to contempt? Or when I was in 10th grade, when a sport that I love, football, and my coach comes to me, and he basically says to me, man, Adam, you know, you're going to play next year because you're a real waste of a uniform. And I walked away, and I went to bed that night in tears. I was crying. I held it strong all the rest of practice. I held it strong in front of my dad. But when I laid down, I cried myself to sleep that night. And I said, you know what? I'm going to prove him wrong. The words that spew out of a coach's mouth can do such damage to people. So again, contempt drives so much of our story to the point we almost think, oh, it's a good thing. Oh, it's terrible. It's when a kid comes to their parents and says, daddy, 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 can we go out to eat tonight? And the dad retorts real quick. What do you think? Money grows on a tree? That's contempt at its finest. It doesn't value the child. It doesn't say to the child, man, that's really cool. You want to go out to eat? I honor you for making that request of me. Or it's the wife that comes to the husband who's sitting there is under all kinds of pressure to get a, get a job done. It's a beautiful evening. And the wife comes and says, oh man, honey, let's go out and go for a walk. And he shoots back. Oh, and when's this going to get done? If I don't get this done, we aren't going to have a, I aren't going to have a house because I'm not going to have a job. I got to get this done. Oh, sure. Let's just go for a walk. It's contempt for the wife making a humble request. Or maybe you confront someone by saying to them, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get this? It's contempt. Now, I could give many stories, and I'm sure you have them too. Contempt drips through much of our daily life. It hides itself. And Jesus says you're guilty of murder when you deliver it to another human being. It's heavy. I want to challenge us with it. Right now, it's estimated that 100, and well, this is an estimate. This is a legit number. 160,000 kids miss school each and every day for fear of attack or intimidation. 160,000 kids in America miss school, will miss school tomorrow, Monday, because of fear of being attacked or intimidated. 90% on a recent Gallup poll, 90% of all fourth to eighth graders report being a victim of bullying. You say, well, that's kids. Half of all U.S. workers, half of all U.S. workers are affected by bullying, which equates last year to $180 million in lost time. It's a problem. It's a problem in our culture. It's nasty, it hurts, and it's ugly. And Jesus says, don't do it. And what he's really driving at, please don't miss this, what he's really driving at, what he's really driving at is, hey, come to me. For your righteousness. Come to me to fulfill the law. Find rest in me. Quit putting other people down to elevate yourself. And he says, listen, listen. He says to us, hey, people are valuable. How you treat people is ultimately how you treat God. That's why in verses 23 and 24, it says, you cannot worship me when you know you've hurt someone and they're holding something against you because of what you've done to them. So go make it right. You really want to worship me? Care for the people who bear my image. Sister, brother, husband, wife, friend, teacher, coach. 
found a cool quote by Alip, I don't know, Albert. I don't even know who this guy is, honestly. I looked at him online this week. I'm not quite, uh, anyway, maybe some of you know who he is, but I love this quote, so I'm going to use it. <laughs> there is merely bad luck in not being loved. I love this quote. So if you're sitting here right now and you've been unloved, you've been mistreated, you've maybe even been the full-blown brunt of abuse or contempt or anger by your spouse or your, or your uh, parents, and it hurts deeply. I love how he says this. It's just kind of bad luck. So you got a bad mom, a bad dad. You got a bad boss. You got a, it's just kind of bad luck. There's tragedy in not loving. All of us today are dying of this tragedy. I love how it kind of reshaped it for us. It kind of showed us the other side of it. We, we focus so much attention on the hurt that comes towards us. Well, they may have a problem. They may be a jerk. Sorry you're born into that family. But the tragedy is when we can't pick ourselves up and say, you know what? I'm going to love others and not return this contempt. So again, I challenge you, play the movie forward when it comes to murder. Play it forward. You see it there. Verses 25 and 26. <laughs> when you're heading off to court, Don't wait till you get all the way to court because it's going to be bad for you. They're going to demand every last penny from you. The longer you let it go, the longer this thing plays out, the more you let it go. See, we think I'm angry at them. I'm going to make them pay. When the end, you pay far more than they ever paid. So verses 20, there in verses 25 and 26, just kind of capture this picture. Keep it short. Go to them. Make it right. Play the movie forward. Look at the carnage that's going to come and the eternal reality that Jesus lays out. Now, with that said, adultery. I'm not going to spend as much time on adultery. Um, but here it is. You say, well, this adultery shifts in. I think they're quite linked. Here's where they're linked. Oftentimes, oftentimes, if you talk to a counselor, and let's just take pornography. Pornography, in my opinion, is spiritual adultery. Those of you in this room who are caught up, and I'm not just going to talk about addicted, looking at porn, binging. Maybe you look at it, maybe today, you don't look at it again for three months, and you you also have this big binge again. Those of you who are looking at porn, it's a habit. It's caught you. It's got its hooks in you. When you talk to counselors and psychologists, habits and hangups, often what stands behind them is hurt. Whether you're an alcoholic and struggling with drug or drugs or whether you're whatever the habit and hang-up is, oftentimes behind that habit and hang-up is pain of some kind that's not been resolved. So I think it's interesting that Jesus lumps this adultery and this lust, which is incredible, it just gets its, its hooks in us. And he links it to the, I, I think it's this put in here, not with mistake, he's saying, listen, oftentimes standing behind that is maybe contempt or anger that spilled your way and you're still walking with pain from your, from your dad or your mom or your teacher, or your coach, or there's stuff in there. I think you also see the, you see the, hook, the, the connection. Dallas Willard, I want to borrow another quote from him. Again, he does have a phenomenal commentary in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it this way, Anger and contempt between mates make sexual delight between them impossible. And when such an important need is unmet, people are almost invariably drawn into the realm of fantasy. So see what he's linking? So if you show contempt towards your spouse, if they feel the hurt and the anger spilling towards them, and it's not taken care of and resolved. Almost always, as I love how he draws this connection, almost always we then withdraw. Instead of going and trying to address the problem, we think I'm going to fix the problem by going and living over here and taking care of the pain in my fantasy world. So I'm going to go over here in my fantasy world. I'm going to live over here where now I am the hero of my story. Everyone bows down and worships me. 
It's what lust does. They all want me. Really? You've got some problems. But we don't see our problems. We're just going to go walk over here. So, so I think there's a link. The, the next link, you say, well, Adam, my sex life is great. I don't have this contempt thing. Yet, yet I, my spouse has some issues. They show me contempt, and I realize I'm not quite enough. But again, I think when we begin to internalize I'm not quite enough, we shift into this fantasy world. Or maybe you arrive at outright pornography. Now, I think the link is even clearer here. Those of you who look at porn, which statistics, men in this room, it's 80 plus percent of you, statistically. Now, I'd like to think, I'd like to think, if you, there's a number of Jesus followers here saying, Adam, no way, it's not me. So I'd like to think here in this room, it is, it is a much lower number. But I'm not going to stick my head in the sand or up in the clouds. I'm going to say, you know what? Life is real. You guys have a little device hanging in your pocket that makes it real easy, computers and everything else. But so again, let's just, the larger number. Here's what I've realized with pornography. The women or men, women, if you're looking at men, you're looking at in the screen, they're simply being used. They're not an object of love and affection. It's contempt at its finest. There's a human being that I'm going to use to meet my needs. It's selfish. It's absorbed. It's showing pure contempt to God's creation. So again, that's where I see the link come in with this murder. And then he slips into adultery. If you're going to walk around and view women that way, men, he's talking directly to men. Women, you're kind of off the hook in this passage. Even in the Greek language, it is 100% masculine. He is going at the men. You walk around and look at women like that way, it is contempt at its finest. You're using them. It's ugly. And then he threatens hell with it. That's going to be your lifestyle says, you're, don't walk around thinking, deluding yourself into thinking, wow, I've got my eternity all secure. Now, I believe in eternal security. But if you've got the hooks of pornography wrapped up in your life, again, I told you, this is going to be a warm and fuzzy message. You've got to step back and begin to do some real work and ask, what's going on here? Am I, try, am I my own God? I'm trying to rely on myself for my own righteousness? And do I really value people? The heart of the gospel, both of those things. Again, play the movie forward in this one. You see it here. This one's really ugly. He says, listen, take care of this. And, um, you know, rather go into heaven maimed than hell whole. But more than that, play the movie forward in this way. Picture yourself. This has always helped me. You're saying right now, you're sitting here in this room, you say, Adam, I've never done it. I can see the temptation to go there. How do I avoid it? Play the movie forward. Picture, have you ever talked with someone who's walked this road? The pain that they experience when they have to sit down and tell the spouse that they stood in front of a church and declared to everyone, I love you and I will love you till death do us part. Jealousy is a human trait that is common to all of us. And when your spouse cheats on you, it is ugly. I've never seen it not be ugly and painful. You've experienced that too. If you've ever walked with someone in this road. So play the movie forward. Try and picture yourself having to sit down and tell your adult children. Yeah, you know what guys? Daddy just couldn't keep it in his pants. You know what, honey? Pay the movie forward. Having to tell your friends, your boss, your teacher, the carnage. I've never seen this one not to just wreck damage. Here's the other one. A lot of times we're thinking, what's going to fix my problems? It doesn't fix your problems. Only 3%. This is the statistics that I could find. Only 3% 
of those of you who will commit adultery actually marry the forbidden lover. Only 3%. Oh, he's so great. She's so awesome. They're going to fix my problems. No, they're not. 75% of those marriages then end in divorce. Of the 3% that actually get married, 75 of those get divorced. So here's what that equates to. That puts the odds of a lasting marriage at 0.075%. So a lot of times we're running into this affair thinking, man, it's going to fix my problems. No, it's not. Your chance of a lasting, happy marriage is not going to be high. In 15 minutes, you can undo what took a lifetime to build. And when you sit with people that have walked this, man, they will bawl and cry, and you will see that reality played out in front of you. It's one of the upsides of being a pastor. I'll be very honest. I know it's gruesome and hard, but as I've walked with people that have been down this road, it helps me tremendously, tremendously to say, I know I don't want to be there. Teach me what led you there. And I've loved learning from those who have walked and recovered and come back around. And man, the pain that they experience does a lot for me to say, I don't want to go there. Play the movie forward. The other thing I'd say is in playing the movie forward, picture yourself standing before the God who loves you. Asking you this question, wasn't I enough? Remember we locked to the first couple commandments are all about loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And often I find my satisfaction in him. It's where my, it's going to give me life. And picture, I say, Adam, wasn't I enough? Live with the conviction that obeying God merits me nothing in my relationship and his acceptance of me. Live from that place, and I promise you, you're going to cut the strings of both murder and contempt and anger and adultery and porn and lust. You're going to slice them right off. Living with that burden, burning conviction that obeying God will merit you nothing in his acceptance of you. I'd say this, deal with your ego. I don't find near enough the every man's battle and all those other books. They're great, great resources, but I don't find near enough of them to deal with ego and pride as the root of pornography and lust and adultery. Deal with your self-righteousness. Deal with your hurt and brokenness. These are all ways to say, okay, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be there. I want to walk with this stuff and deal with it all in the person of Jesus. And the final thing I would say is this, don't preach to yourself, stop it. Some of you right now sitting here thinking, man, Adam, I got a porn problem, something fierce, and I'm, I'm trying. I got to stop it. I got to stop it. No, preach to your heart, follow Jesus. Love Jesus. Yes, in the meantime, cut off your hand. Get rid of, in other words, get rid of your phone. Get rid of your computer. But follow Jesus. Here's how I want to conclude. I'm going to tell a funny story because right now all of you are sitting looking at me like. <sighs> and I'll say that this story I think will help us end well. It is funny. Served with a pastor in uh, Mifflin County who Spanish, he, he knew Spanish well. Uh, he spent some time on a missions trip in Mexico where they were preaching in a church. And he had a friend who was standing up preaching one day. So he knows how he's in Mexico. He's, he's, um, he kind of grew up in the Northeast. English was his first language. Spanish was his second. So he preaches this message in Spanish. And he think he did a pretty good job, and he could see people's connection, and he could see. So he, he leads to the end, he's going to do an altar call. So he decides, he, he presents the message of Jesus, of you're a sinner, you need Jesus to, to save you, uh, so put your faith and trust in him. So he t- challenges everyone in the room. He says, listen, he starts building up with all this fervor and emotion. He says, if you're a sinner, please stand to your feet. Now, there was a smaller church, maybe of 100 to 150 people. Not a single person in the church stood up. So he's like, man... 
as, as my, uh, this pastor tells me the story, he goes, man, I thought I was pretty good. I could see the connection. Why did no one stand? They must have misunderstood me. So he says with all, he, everything he musters, if you're a sinner, there's hope for you. Please stand to your feet. Again, no one stands up. So he tries one more time. Third time's a charm, right? So he says it again with everything in him. He just says, you're a sinner. Stand to your feet. In the back of the church, two people slowly kind of, they had folding chairs. So they kind of pushed their folding chairs back and slowly, real sheepishly stand up. So he looks at them and says, praise God for you. Now, come to find out later, what he was really asking the church is if you're an adulterer, please stand up. When I heard that, I just kind of chuckled. That's the joys of moving, translating one language to another when you're not your native uh, language. Now, here's what I want to end with that. As I said earlier, it's a much broader problem. I dare say there's a one of us in this room that could not be found guilty for murder when you look at it through the lens of anger and contempt. I don't think there's one of you here that's not guilty. When you look at adultery... There's some of you in this room that have full-blown committed the physical act. And as we talked in our, on our series a long while back about degrees of sin, yes, it is much uglier than lust. We understand that. But the reality is God kind of puts it all on the same playing field. So there's some of you here that have committed adultery, and there's some of you here that in this room that really struggle with lust, a large majority of you. So what do I do with that? Well, here's what I want to end with. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. <laughs> but here's what I want to end with. Jesus, when he opens up the Sermon on the Mount, he starts out by saying to the religious leaders, I have come to fulfill the law. It's in me. Please hear this message. If you don't let this message resonate in your heart, I promise it will be, you will play that movie forward. It will likely be ugly at some point in your life. What he's saying is saying, listen, your self-righteous attitude of you think you can take care of it all and you can perform and you can be holy enough and you can be good enough. It's making you angry and miserable and you really aren't caring for the people in your life because of it. Know that you cannot fix yourself. You cannot make yourself righteous. The law reveals to you that you have a problem. I have come to fulfill that law in you. And by you putting your trust and your faith in me, God looks down at you and says righteous, not because of you, what you have done, but because of what I have done in you. That's how the Sermon on the Mount opens up. Now, he doesn't have it quite worded like that, but he says it this way. I have come to fulfill the law. And then I love how the sermon ends. I love it. I love it. I love it. It ends with the famous children's story. If you've probably heard the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock. You know that whole, the whole story, the wise man, the foolish man, the one guy builds his house in the sand, the other guy builds it in the rock, and then the storm comes along, and the guy that has it in the sand, it just gets wiped out, and the guy that built it in the rock, it stands strong. That's how he ends the Sermon on the Mount. I love it. I was just saying, respond to me. Now listen, listen. He says, I fulfill the law. Now go and live my kingdom way out through my empowerment. Here's how you want to live life. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. He talks about how to handle money in there. It's a very practical teaching. Go live it and you will stand strong on the rock. A lot of people preach that the rock is Jesus. I question that. I think the rock is just living a good, solid life. So find your righteousness in Jesus. Find his forgiveness and his grace to run deep. Find the hope and the mercy to be real and tangible. 
And stop looking, looking to all of your hard work and performance and putting others down to make yourself good and rest in Jesus. And that's where we find our hope. That's where we, number one, find forgiveness for when we do violate it. And that's where we also gives us the power to live to avoid it as we play the movie forward. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he's fulfilled the law. God, your law is good and it's beautiful. And when we live it, man, there's life. We live on a rock. But God, man, I know in a room this size, there are many people here that their life has been built on sand. And they know the pain of destruction of storms that have hit and wiped them out. So God, I pray for them, first of all, here as I just close in prayer. And I, my heart cries out for them. They hurt because of the mistakes that they've made and maybe some big ones. God, would they right now just bathe and know your grace and your mercy that's available in Jesus? God, for the rest of us in this room that may have never gotten in bed with someone who's not our spouse or never pulled the trigger of a gun or stuck a knife in someone, but God, boy, contempt and anger can come quick and easy. Lust and fantasy can set in overnight. God, what we see at the root of that, what we see it for what it is, how ugly it is, how it is, how it's us trying to find life in something other than Jesus, someone other than you. God, would you convict us of our pride and our self-righteousness, how, how, how easily we run to those, those places. And God, would you give us the strength and the courage in response to what you have done in us to live well towards people, valuing people, valuing our kids, our spouses, our coworkers, our teachers, our bosses, our friends. God, would you give us the courage, especially the men in the room, to treat women with dignity. Treat them as your creation, not with contempt and someone to be used. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much for the grace and mercy that he gives us. In his name we pray. Amen.